Hello and welcome everybody. I do hope you are well. It's Deborah Harcourt speaking here from Asia Pacific Early Childhood Consultants. As you may have noticed in the first two of our podcasts, we are looking to explore some ideas in early childhood that might challenge us or perhaps we need to relook at things in a different way or in a new way. Things that are going on that sometimes are the elephant in the room, as was, I guess, the topic of our last podcast. In this one, I would like us to give some consideration to what I've called the sacred cows. And I'm not sure if you know what I mean by the sacred cows, but I guess these are the things in early childhood that we've always done. And... They're the kinds of things that I guess we find very, very difficult to change or to look at in new ways. So I'd like to propose today that we open up a dialogue around a couple of sacred cows that um, I'm going to propose to you today. And I'm sure there are many others. And as your thinking progresses and as you engage in a dialogue with your colleagues, I'm sure you'll find many more. But today I'd just like to focus on a few. And I guess I'm saying to us as an early childhood profession, just because we've always done something in one way, does that mean we have to keep doing it? Does it mean that we don't sometimes need to stop and rethink our practice or rethink think the kinds of resources and materials that are offered to children. And this might be particularly relevant for those of you who are engaged in um, renovation or who engage in, are engaged in major practice change. Uh, there might be some of you who have the great opportunity to be involved in a new build for uh, an early childhood setting. So. I'm thinking that perhaps this is a good opportunity for us to rethink some of these things. So let me start with this notion of Malaguzzi's 100 languages, which we've been gifted, of course, from our colleagues in Regimilia. And I often refer to Malaguzzi's 100 languages as expressive languages. I really try and translate the gifts that are offered to us from our colleagues in Regimilia um, into a new light, I guess, what they might look like when they're translated into different contexts. And as I began to unpack the notion of what the 100 languages might look like as expressive languages, in another context, and in this case, particularly in the Australian context. I started to look at some of those things that we've always considered to be the cornerstones, I suppose, of experiences that we would offer young children. So if I draw upon the thinking from Malaguzzi, if I draw upon the wonderful thinking that's offered from our colleagues in Regimilia, and then I start to think about our own context. So there's a couple that I'd like us to think about just to start with. One of the things that I often 
hear early childhood educators say when I'm posing questions around the types of experiences they offer young children. And I often get a response that, well, this is for sensory experience, this is for sensory play. Young children need these kinds of experiences so they light up their senses. And of course I'm not saying I disagree with that, but I'm also saying we have to draw upon our knowledge of child development. We have to draw upon our knowledge of sustainable practices and we have to draw upon our knowledge of our own context. So let's just take water and sand as a beginning example of what I'm talking about here. Now if we go back to the notion of sensory play, my understanding from child development that sensory play is an extraordinary, is it, oh, let me say that again, it's, it's an extraordinary series of opportunities and experiences that we need to offer young children and particularly young children under the age of two. As you would all know, very young children, those um, in the infant and toddler ages, need to understand what stories their senses are telling them. So what things smell like and what they taste like and what they feel like and what they look like. And because young children are yet to develop their senses, they use their senses in a way to help them understand the world around them. And you would all know, for those of you who work with infants, how young children put things in their mouths and they bang them and they really examine them very carefully to kind of make sense of the question, well, what is this and what can I do with that? As a child develops their sensory understanding of the world, they then use their senses to explore the world in more depth, I guess. They understand how their senses interact with the world and then they can use their senses at a more complex way or a, a more complex way of looking at the world or experiencing the world. And they can also use their senses to do things like self-soothing and self-regulation and to reduce anxiety and to reduce stress. So we see opportunities such as offering children water and sand, older children, I think more to help them use their senses in that way, if that makes sense. But on the other hand, I'd like us to examine things like water and sand with a look at sustainable practices and a look at um, particular context where your early childhood setting might exist. Now for water, for example, I am becoming quite distressed and particularly around uh, this time and place, which is September of 2017, when Australia, the majority of Australia, is experiencing a very, very dry period and we actually live on the driest continent on earth. And I'm wondering if it is possible for, as part of our sustainable practices, if we could consider the use of water play with young children in a new way.
Now I have visited a number of centres across Australia who have water parks, uh, places where there are fountains of water for children to play in, which is, which is fabulous. I, I don't have a problem with that. But what I do have a problem is, is how do we help children understand things like conservation of water? And if we have a look through the catalogues, and if I visit many early childhood centres, we often see the obligatory water trough, uh, which is filled up with water for children to play in. And then I wonder what happens to that water. Often it's just uh, let out onto the ground, but obviously I'm sure many of you recycle that water and put it into the garden. But I wonder if we could rethink the use of water play with young children and perhaps begin to offer opportunities to play with water when it's naturally occurring. So for example, obviously when it's raining, or perhaps if you've got a small water tank underneath a water pump for the children to access water into the sandpit, and of course they need to understand that they'll have to wait for the water tank to fill um, so they can use it and once the water tank is empty there are there is no water left so I'm wondering if we can help children connect more with the real world as we use these traditional experiences with young children but deepen their understanding of how it connects to the real world so that we become more sustainable in our practices but we become more environmentally aware and we're supporting young children to become more environmentally aware. The other one I'd like to think about is sand and many of you, well I'm, I'm guessing nearly everyone would have um, a sand pit and sand is wonderful play. Once again I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't have sand pits or we shouldn't have water play, but I'm asking if we could reconsider these kinds of experiences. So just an example for you, as I was discussing a renovation of an outdoor play space of a centre in Malulaba in Queensland, um, which is on the Sunshine Coast. And if I walked out of the centre and went down the road which would probably be about 50 meters and looked around the corner and down the road I would see one of the biggest sand pits going and that's called Malulabar Beach and in this particular center they wanted to redesign two sand pits that they had and I began to talk with the team there about what sort of opportunities are you trying to offer these children when they already have a very large sand pit down at the beach. Most of the children lived in the local area and to have not one but two sand pits seemed to me to be a little bit at odds with the kinds of experiences that we might offer young children in an early childhood setting that they perhaps do not have elsewhere. So it was an interesting conversation because one of the educators said to me, but Deborah, we always have had a sand pit. We've always had a sand pit here. Early childhood centres must have sand pits because it's good for children's sensory play. So I invited them to think a little bit more about the kinds of experiences that sand offers children and could we offer children something else 
in replace of sand that would give them the same experiences that the educators thought that sand offered. So it was sensory play, it was the ability to dig, it was the ability to make tunnels, build towers, sand castles. But when we really looked at it, there were quite limited opportunities in the sand pit that we could expand upon if we use that same space, for example, as an opportunity to work with larger loose parts in order for children to construct, reconstruct and deconstruct, I guess, a play space that they had a lot of control over that still gave them many of the experiences that they had in the sandpit, but in a much broader way. The next one, I guess, in terms of sacred cows that I'd like us to think about is um, Play-Doh. And I have a little debate going on in my head around Play-Doh versus play. And, and often when I'm speaking to educators around this debate inside of my head, uh, the answer is, but children love Play-Doh. And we must give it to them. We've always given them Play-Doh. But when we start to think about it, I think there are some other opportunities that we can think about that perhaps deepen our understanding of why we offer these sorts of malleable experiences for children. So in terms of Play-Doh, I guess, there are three or four issues that I have and I guess one of them is around sustainability because as you would all know Play-Doh doesn't last very long and up in Queensland where I'm based by the time Friday comes around it's fairly mouldy and uh, doesn't work so well it gets a bit smelly and slimy so it must be thrown out at the end of the week so it's not sustainable over a long period of time. The second thing, I guess, is around our ethical responsibility. And Play-Doh is actually made out of food. So I'm wondering if we offer ourselves an opportunity to rethink the kinds of materials and resources that we offer children when we know that food for many families is hard to come by. And, and I'm not talking about in poverty-stricken, war-ravaged places on the other side of the world. I'm actually talking about in our own neighbourhoods where many families are struggling um, to find enough food to put on the table each week. And I guess the other thing to that one is too that many families say to their children at the dinner table, for example, please don't play with your food. Yet in an early childhood centre, we are often offering food substance for children to play with. The other one is that I remember Carla Rinaldi from Regimilia saying in a presentation a couple of years ago was that Play-Doh holds no memory. You can't come back and work on a piece of Play-Doh over time as your thinking expands. And I really like that notion, Play-Doh has no memory. And then the last one for me is really about 
child development. So I'd ask you just to imagine as you're sitting listening, if you had a piece of Play-Doh in front of you, and I want you to try and make a sausage out of that Play-Doh. So just as you're sitting there, just roll your hands as if you had a piece of Play-Doh in front of you. So just roll your hands and I want you to think about what's your body doing as you are rolling that sausage in front of you. Just think of the actions you're doing. Uh, think about the muscles you're using, the kind of pressure you're using. Now I'd like you to put, a imagine you've got a piece of clay in front of you. Now try and make a sausage out of that clay. Go ahead, see if you can do it. Now I do hope that you have stood up to use that clay because clay is very resistant. So stand up and really push down on that clay. Bang the clay with your fist really hard. Can you feel the difference in your body as you're banging on that clay, as you're trying really hard to move that clay so it would work um, and end up as a sausage. Now go back to rolling the clay, making, uh, sorry, rolling the Play-Doh into a sausage. How's your body feeling now? Can you feel the difference between the two? So when you're working with the clay, you should have felt it right across the back of your shoulders, down your arms and into your fingers and what we need to do with young children particularly as a precursor to writing is we need to help them build muscle development first so muscle development comes first then comes motor development and it is my strong belief that clay is a much better material to work around those developmental issues than is Play-Doh. Clay is recyclable, clay is sustainable, you can work with clay over a long period of time, you can reconstitute clay, you can add ideas to it. So I think right from very young children in, in our infant's room, if we offered them clay over Play-Doh, I think we would develop their muscle skills and then their motor skills um, in a much more sophisticated way. So I guess that's another one of those sacred cows that we've had. We've always had Play-Doh, so let's keep doing it, when in actual fact I think there are a number of areas that we could look at in terms of replacing um, some of the sacred cows that we've talked about with other things. So today I've just focused on water and sand and play-doh but I'm sure you could think of a number of others like puzzles for example. You could think of another, a number of other pieces of material or resources or experiences that we would offer children and have a look at them in a new way. So I hope that's given you a little bit of food for thought and as you engage in a dialogue with your colleagues, maybe do a walk and talk through your settings to see what else have we got there that we've always had that perhaps we could have a re-look at. So thank you very much for joining me on this, our third podcast, and I very much look forward to talking with you again very soon. Bye for now.